I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine a multi-level marketing meeting at your neighbor's house, like Herbalife or Amway. Or since this meeting is taking place in 1987, you could think of Tupperware if you want. But instead of Herbalife, Amway, or Tupperware, the guy giving the pitch at this meeting is selling something no one has ever thought to sell at a meeting like this. He's selling distribution. Movie distribution. You know, the thing that major studios like Warner Brothers and Paramount do. Except this guy is standing there with folders and charts and saying he's got a better way. There's a better way to distribute movies. To change the industry. And he's the guy to do it. So as you sit there with your neighbors and friends, what do you do? Do you invest? Do you walk away? If you're like me, cheap, you listen to the pitch and then politely leave and be back safe at home with your money in your pocket in time to catch a new episode of Night Court. If you're not like me and you invest with this guy, well, I really can't blame you. The thing is, this guy has already done it before. He's already changed movie distribution and the industry. And now you'd have a chance to join him in possibly doing it again. Because you see, this guy is Tom Laughlin. And Tom Laughlin did change the industry in the 1970s. But after almost a decade away from making movies, Tom is about to embark on a journey to bring back the iconic movie character he's known for and find a number of obstacles in his way. Things like uncooperative studios, a disobedient breakaway bottle, and maybe a double homicide. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're taking a look at the return of Billy Jack. Welcome to the industry. Before we talk about the return of Billy Jack, let's talk for a minute about who Billy Jack is. A Green Beret Vietnam veteran and a half-breed American Navajo Indian. And yes, of course, he is played by a fully white man. After all, we're going back 40 and 50 years. Billy just wanted to have peace and love, and to have the peace-loving kids that went to his peaceful freedom school to be left alone. But if they're not left alone, a fury of kicks is to be unleashed not unlike anything moviegoers had ever seen. This was the character that would define Tom Laughlin's career. He came up with the idea for Billy Jack in the 1950s when he was just a working actor. Laughlin worked steadily in small parts in the 1950s, and in the early 1960s, he even got to write, direct, and star in a couple of movies. A couple of movies that no one really saw. But no one was interested in his grand idea of Billy Jack, so Laughlin would take matters into his own hands. He came up with another movie that he knew he could get made. He would write, direct, and star in it. This movie was about a biker gang terrorizing a small town. It was called The Born Losers. Look at this! 600 Somalis! These are the Born Losers, the sickest sickle gang that ever terrorized a town while the law stood helpless. You know, not only do they assault her, but they're free to go right on keeping her living in terror. If only one of us had the guts to just cut them down. I've been wanting to crack at you from the beginning. Are you planning on fighting or uh, talking me to death? American International Pictures, or better known as AIP, never met a biker movie they didn't like, so they were happy to pick up and distribute The Born Losers, which happened to be a winner at the box office. 
and Tom, being no fool, made sure that he played the hero of the picture, a half-breed American Navajo Indian named Billy Jack. And no, there, there wasn't any peace or love or freedom school or kids or anything like that. Not yet, at least. Still, it was a brilliant move. Having Billy Jack as the hero of a cheap exploitation picture that did well meant getting the funding to make a sequel and really to make the movie he actually wanted to make all along was now a very real possibility. AIP was in for a second go-round at first, but balked when they realized what they were getting themselves into. The second film, simply called Billy Jack, did feature plenty of high-kicking action, but also all that peace and love and messaging. AIP was all about exploitation and kicking. They were not really interested in morals and politics. They eventually bowed out. That was okay, because 20th Century Fox was up next, and they made sure that the picture got finished. Then they screened it. Again, it was Billy Jack's politicking that became a problem. They in particular didn't like a scene that compared current President Richard Nixon to Adolf Hitler. But Tom Laughlin waited a long time to get to this point with this movie, and he wasn't going to be changing anything. It was a stalemate, until Laughlin one day couldn't locate the reels of his movie. They were missing. The only thing he could find on the Fox lot was the soundtrack reel to the movie. Figuring that Fox was going to recut his movie without his permission, he took the soundtrack reel. Knowing they couldn't recut the movie without the soundtrack reel, Fox just wanted to get out of the Billy Jack business and gave Laughlin his movie back. Next up, it was Warner Brothers. And they agreed to distribute the movie, but didn't really make much of an effort in doing it. No ads, no nothing. They just dumped it out into theaters in 1971. And not always the kinds of theaters that you're thinking of. When he did Billy Jack, Warner Brothers had told him they would release it in the A-list theaters. A-list theaters. And suddenly he finds out that they're listing him, they're going to play it in porno houses in Chicago. It's where they're going to open it up. That's Robin Hutton. She was Tom Laughlin's assistant for over 30 years. Laughlin would sue Warner Brothers to get back his movie. And this took two years. And so he sued to get it back, and, and, and Warner Brothers had only done $6 million with, with the film at the time. Well, Tom gets it back and, and four-walls it and does $36 million more with a two-year-old supposedly played-out picture. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the concept of four-walling, which was discussed in Episode 8 of The Industry, Staring at the Sun, this was the process of renting out a movie theater yourself to show a movie. You would then collect everything from the box office. He didn't just four-wall it, though. He also did a major television campaign, something that was simply not done at the time. He called it super-saturation marketing, and this was the first time he changed the industry. He would spend $300,000 on this ad campaign in California. A number of commercials hit the air. Some of them had movie clips. When's the last time you cut your hair? When's, when's the last time you brushed your teeth, sir? Why is Billy Jack one of the most popular pictures of our time? But you're really scared, and you're scared of all of us, and you're scared of me. Because you're a filthy little girl. It has played longer in cities and towns throughout the country than perhaps any picture in recent years. Our behavior as this council, we're proving to these students that most of the things they believe about us are true. 
But they're proving to us that most of the things we fear about them are true. Billy Jack has something special. Something that has touched the American nerve. It's something that has to be seen to be understood. On the bloody morning after Billy Jack. Rated PG. And some of them just had audience testimonials. This would feature people who had just come out of a movie screening, and they all seemed like they had had this religious experience. All of us had really enjoyed it, that had seen it before, so we all decided to come back and see it again. It's the second time. I think I've seen it about three times. This is the second time for my children. We've had people come back eight, ten, twelve times. At least ten, truly, even though I'm part of the Saratan set. This makes my fifth time. I came four times and cried each time. You like it the first time, but you've got to go back and see it. It had taken Laughlin two years in court to get control of Billy Jack, but in the end, it was worth it. The movie was a hit, reaching an instant cult status with the youth and counterculture of 1973. And let's not overlook that it provided the world with this classic cinematic moment. Well, it doesn't look to me like I really have any choice, now does it? (laughs) That's right, you don't. You know what I think I'm going to do then? Just for the hell of it. Tell me. I'm going to take this right foot and I'm going to whop you on that side of your face. And you want to know something? There's not a damn thing you're going to be able to do about it. Really? Really? Kill that Indian son of a bitch! All in all, it took Tom Laughlin 18 months to four-wall this movie across the country, having to work with each theater individually. It was no small feat, but it did pay off. With his newfound wealth, Laughlin ignored all of the offers from Hollywood that were now coming his way. Instead, he took the millions he made from his movie and started his own company, Billy Jack Enterprises, and got to work on his next film. And yeah, it was another Billy Jack movie. His next movie was 1974's The Trial of Billy Jack, and this would be the second time that he ended up changing the industry. This is where he came up with... The Mega Multiple. The Mega Multiple. Or, as you know it today, the wide release. Back in 1974, movies were rolled out to 40 or maybe 75 theaters. That all changed after Tom Laughlin had the crazy idea to put The Trial of Billy Jack into 1,200 theaters. He also upped his super-saturation marketing. Before, he was doing regional commercials, like mainly in California. But for trial, he went national. He spent $3 million on advertising the week trial opened. According to Laughlin, he spent $3.5 million to make it, $3 million to advertise it, and 30 days after release, it had grossed $32 million. Six months later, Columbia Pictures would release the Charles Bronson thriller Breakout in a wide release and Universal would do the same with Jaws. Eventually, it became the industry standard. But let's talk about The Trial of Billy Jack. The first two movies in the series clocked in at under two hours, but for Trial, Laughlin bumped that runtime way up to two hours and 50 minutes, almost three full hours. Sure, you got some of those kicks that you were looking for, but you also got a lot of endless monologues. Trial, in the end, was no doubt profitable, but critics absolutely hated it. So much so that Laughlin, for some reason, felt the need to respond with an essay writing contest. Seriously, 
the Billy Jack versus the Critics contest awarded $25,000 to the best essay explaining why The Trial of Billy Jack was actually a good movie and why critics have no idea what they're talking about. I'm sure Laughlin's motivation for this was sincere, but it does seem a bit absurd to be offering up twenty-five grand for basically what amounts to a good movie review. The last movie in the Billy Jack series is a remake. Frank Capra Jr., a producer and son of the legendary director Frank Capra, he did It's a Wonderful Life, had the idea for Laughlin to remake his father's movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, as a vehicle for Billy Jack. Laughlin intended this movie, called Billy Jack Goes to Washington, to be out around Christmas of 1976. But at the same time he was making this picture, he was also suing Warner Brothers and NBC over the television rights to Billy Jack. Laughlin would later file in court that NBC and Warner Brothers were pressuring the bank that was financing his movie, Billy Jack Goes to Washington, to pull their funding. The cost of making the movie Billy Jack Goes to Washington, plus the cost of the lawsuit with Warners and NBC, and the added withdrawal of funds from that bank, all added up and took their toll. Billy Jack Goes to Washington would get made, but would only play in a handful of theaters in 1977, and basically end up sitting in Tom Laughlin's personal collection for years. It didn't help that he screened Billy Jack Goes to Washington for members of the actual Congress, and they weren't too happy about it. Consider that Goes to Washington has even more speeches and less kicks than you had in trial, and maybe it's not that surprising that it barely saw the light of day. And he was working on re-editing Billy Jack Goes to Washington when I started uh, working with him. He was, he was re-editing that, and Frank... His son, Frank, was doing a lot of work on re-editing that, hopefully to get it into a, uh, you know, major film release. But sadly, that never that never happened. And just a few years removed from his great success of Billy Jack in 1973, the fights and lawsuits took their toll. Tom Laughlin just kind of disappeared, at least from Hollywood. Most of that time he was teaching and he taught a course on Jungian psychology at Boulder. Colorado. Um, he was working on his different uh, books, psychology books. He's written several on Jungian psychology. Uh, he'd be given conferences, uh, workshops on dream interpretation. And the main thing he really started doing was putting these principles to work for cancer patients. And uh, he, for gosh, many, many years, worked with over a thousand cancer patients and developed his six psychological factors that he found present in 85% of the cancer patients that he worked with. They did, you know, doing their dreams and doing his, you know, psychological work. He could find these principles and would give these people the tools on how to work with these factors and uh, transform them so their cancer really became a calling to a greater part of themselves and a real learning tool if they uh, if they so saw it that way and chose to move that way. So his work with cancer really in the 80s is what started to really happen in the 80s and 90s, and that was very, very important to him. Eventually, Tom Laughlin got back to doing what he was put on earth to do, make another Billy Jack movie. Except now, it was the 1980s. In November of 1985, he called a press conference to announce the return of Billy Jack. That's what it was called. 
This is about two years before he would start making appearances in people's homes pitching the same movie. But he didn't just announce it. He stood on a stage surrounded by 13 Lucite cylinders. Each cylinder contained $1 million. I'm not sure why he felt the need to show off the money he had raised for the return of Billy Jack, but there it was. And in case you were concerned about security, don't worry because he put an armed security guard in front of each cylinder. The new movie would start production in one month and would cost $12 million. But wait, there's more. He also said he would spend another $12 million on marketing, breaking that down to $1 million for each of the 12 audiences he had identified for Billy Jack movies. No, I have no idea who these audiences were or what that even means. He was also going to use $1 million for cash and prizes given to theater owners who came up with innovative ways to help market the movie. And if that's not enough, there's also a $100,000 prize for the person who came up with the best idea to help theater owners beat the video cassette market. That's right. We're looking at you, VHS. He also had a list of reasons as to why he was coming back. Number one, studios had lost their way and were no longer making movies that people really wanted to see. Number two, the Billy Come Latelys that were out there. That's right, we're talking about you, Chuck Norris, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Sylvester Stallone. You Billy Come Latelys, you all lack the humanity that was at the core of Billy Jack. Number three, three out of four people who were asked in research interviews say that they want another Billy Jack movie and that more than one of two would prefer a new Billy Jack over another Rocky, Dirty Harry, Rambo, or Indiana Jones. And number four, the number one disease in the Western world is loneliness. I, I don't really know what this has to do with Billy Jack, but that was one of the reasons, so okay. And just what was the plot to the return of Billy Jack, you may wonder? I asked Robin Hutton for this, and it did take her a couple of minutes to remember, but eventually she got it. You know, this, this is going back like 30 years, you know, 25 years, and I'm like, oh my God, what was the plot there? But yeah, Billy Jack goes to New York, and um, Gene, I guess, oh, I know what it is. Carol, you know, little Carol, who was in the, the original films and stuff, their daughter, Teresa, um, she was a DA in New York, and... Um, there, there was a big, uh, I guess, a problem there back in the 80s, you know, with the child pornography and everything on the streets of New York and these runaway kids and all of this. And so anyway, so she calls upon Jean and Billy to come and help her with something uh, to get, you know, get them, uh, she needed some help or something. And they come to New York and get involved in trying to, Jean's running this home then for these kids these runaway kids uh, in New York. And, of course, Billy kind of um, uh, doesn't quite understand the ways of New York, and so he's trying to find his way in it all. And uh, it, it was really quite, A, interesting, but also kind of fun seeing Billy out of his element in New York City. You know, <laughs> so, so it was really kind of interesting that way. But he, he took on a whole new villain. So let me get this straight. Billy Jack goes to 1980s New York to fight child pornographers. Okay, I really want to see this movie. One month after his announcement, he was off to Toronto to start filming The Return of Billy Jack. 
and things started off great. You know, we went up to Canada to um, take advantage of their tax breaks and their costs and stuff. And we were up in Toronto and we were in the area where the, they just did the, I want to say, Police Academy films. Is that the one where there were the comedy films? This one area was like a, not a, a, a hospital or university. There was a series of buildings that were like a university or a hospital or something that had turned into like a film-making community type thing. So we took these buildings over, and it was just wonderful what they, they had available there. And it was absolutely a delight and a lot of fun. We really enjoyed working with the Canadian people on this. So for almost two months, Laughlin and company worked on the return of Billy Jack. They filmed in Toronto, which is always a good stand-in for New York City, but they also made a trip to the Big Apple to sneak a few shots in. We shot in New York you know, City. We did second unit shooting in New York City and during during Christmas, you know. So, you know, Dolores and, and TC come walking out of St. Pat's Cathedral there and walk down Fifth Avenue and, you know, or right stop right in front of Rockefeller Center with all the angels and the, you know, everything going on there. And it, it was just, and you know, it, and it's guerrilla, guerrilla filmmaking, you know. <laughs> it was so much fun because... We all like did lunch in one of the restaurants downstairs at the ice skating rink at Rockefeller Center, you know. And we and so the, the, the camera guys were we got we got right at a window table and my my younger sister was there helping us kind of manage things, you know, crowd control and stuff. And so we're filming from this restaurant without a permit. <laughs> shooting shooting at the Christmas tree, shooting this scene, getting all of this stuff. It was brilliant. It was so much so everything is going great, and clearly Robin is having the time of her life. And then, one day in early 1986... We were working in a warehouse up in Toronto, and he was... The, the thing called... It was a fight scene in, the, in this warehouse. And um, uh, he was hit over the head with a breakaway bottle, but the bottle was, was very thick and it didn't quite break away. And so when he was hit on the back of the head with it, he goes down, and, you know, they're still filming and stuff, and, and he really ends up with a horrible concussion. Um, really bad headache. It, uh, yeah, he was hit with that. I'll never forget that. I could still, I could still see it in him. Him grabbing the back of his head and saying, oh, my God, that hurt. And, you know, he was almost bleeding, but it just had this huge knot on the back of his head. And uh, he, he, he went down. He, he really almost knocked, him, it almost knocked him out cold. While he was home recuperating from the concussion, he decided to change his plan a little bit. Rather than distribute the return of Billy Jack himself, which is something that he essentially did with all of his other movies, he would instead sell the movie to a major studio. He had Paramount Pictures interested and willing to pay $12.5 million for the return of Billy Jack. But that deal disappeared once an insurance investigation was launched to see whether or not Laughlin had actually been hurt on the set by that disobedient breakaway bottle. Laughlin would then go through a series of events somewhat just like what I described to you, looking for a deal to help finance all his plans and then watching them slip away at the last minute. Then Robin told me this bit of information. It was beautifully filmed. He got halfway through, I think, 
And that's when um, the Menendez brothers, you know, killed their parents and, and that money fell through. And the film just kind of lingered, lingered there for, uh, and he couldn't quite get it, uh, the rest of the financing, you know, pulled together. That's right. She said the Menendez brothers, as in Eric and Lyle, the two guys who murdered their parents and became a media fascination, those Menendez brothers. Now, the timing of this may be a bit off. The Menendez brothers murdered their parents in 1989, and Tom Laughlin was struggling with his finances for the return of Billy Jack in 1986. But Jose Menendez, Eric and Lyle's father, was the head of something called International Video Entertainment in 1987, which ended up becoming live entertainment a year later. Now, Laughlin did have a $4.2 million home video deal that blew up after he didn't have the proper paperwork submitted to the bank. Now, I am not sure if this is the deal that Robin is thinking of, or maybe he had secured another deal sometime around 1989. In all fairness to Robin, it's been over 30 years. What I do know is that after the Paramount deal went south and another deal couldn't be made anywhere else in town... This is where Tom Laughlin started showing up in your neighbor's house, pitching not only the return of Billy Jack, but a way to revolutionize movie distribution. In particular, he was looking at home video distribution. So Laughlin had an idea. If you wanted to buy a movie in the early to mid-1980s, you know, actually own the VHS cassette, that would run you about $60 to $80. And nobody wanted to do that. So the rental was king. But studies were showing that consumers would be willing to spend around 20 bucks for a movie. Laughlin believed that if studios could avoid dealing with video stores like Blockbuster, for example, and sell videotapes directly to consumers through some other company, well, that studios would adopt that company in a heartbeat. Laughlin had also concluded that 85% of the people who went into a video store didn't get the movie they were looking for and instead went home empty-handed or, like I often did, ended up settling for something else. So his grand idea was, in a nutshell, this. The home delivery of movies through a national network of independent distributors. You'd sign up for this program for $295. This would be to cover the cost of training and a sample inventory. And then, basically, you would become the traveling video store. Blockbuster by way of Mary Kay, or Amway, or you get the idea. His goal was to get 300,000 salespeople. I have no idea how far along he got with this, but needless to say, this plan did not work out. And neither did the return of Billy Jack. Tom Laughlin never got more than halfway finished with it, and after trying to raise the money to finish the movie and getting nowhere, he eventually just had to let it go. It was. It was very crushing. I don't remember exactly when that was, but it it was really, it was really, really sad, you know, because you knew it was such a dream and it was so close. And, um, you know, uh, but you just got to a point of saying, well, I guess that's, you know, he always tried to see what God or the unconscious was up to. That was one of his great... Um, abilities and great things to see that if if something doesn't come together 
um, it's not meant to be, you know, and he tries to find the meaning or he tried to find, you know, whatever he could out of it to make sense out of it all, you know, but it was very, very crushing for him that he, he didn't get another Billy Jack film going. Tom Laughlin didn't get Billy Jack to return. And in the 2000s, he would make various announcements about making another movie. None of them ever materialized, but he did have one more fight to win. Eventually, Hollywood came around to the idea of doing another Billy Jack movie. There was still a legit fan base out there, and let's not forget how successful Billy Jack was in 1973. First up was DreamWorks. They got involved with Keanu Reeves initially attached to play a new Billy Jack. But then a different company came in and took over the project. DreamWorks and Keanu was quickly out, and a new company called Intermedia was in. He did have a deal with a studio, Intermedia Studio, uh, back in 2003 or four. And um, when they made the deal, it was supposed to be a sequel. And the whole deal, the whole um, pitch that Tom made was that this was going to be a, a handing down. So he would have been in it and he would have been, you know, handing down the mantle to a Mark Wahlberg or whoever. Um, and, you know, giving him transferring over that power. And um, they hired a writer for it. And um, the writer couldn't figure out the right thing for a sequel. So he pitched it to the studio head to do a remake, which was never, never. Tom never wanted to see a remake of this. Never. Not in his lifetime anyway. The studio uh, behind Tom's back decided to go with a remake, and Tom sued him. In the 70s, Tom Laughlin sued to get back the rights to his cinematic alter ego, so it was no surprise that he was doing it again. So when it was time for the arbitration hearing, Tom, along with his assistant, Robin Hutton, and his wife, Dolores Taylor, all went in together. Now, it should be noted here that Dolores Taylor, his wife, is sorely underrepresented in this podcast. I know, I completely admit it. But it should be noted that Dolores was not only his co-star in the Billy Jack movies, but his partner in pretty much everything that he did. It was that intense. Oh my God. Oh my God. Because, you know, they'd be throwing everything at it. It was supposed to be a three-day trial, three-day arbitration. And, you know, we had to come up with the questions. And Tom would be acting as if we had no lawyer. Tom was the head, the lawyer. He was it was in pro per. And so he would be the one asking the, you know, the defendants, the people, the questions and everything. And then we'd have to go back that night and whatever he came up with going home, I would have to organize with Dolores. We would organize this stuff, type it up and have it ready for him the next morning. I would I, I would not get to bed before one or two o'clock in the morning and have to be on the road by six because we had to get downtown L.A. by nine. And it was crazy, crazy. But all that they while the arbitrator, the judge found in favor of the studio, all the studio got was five more months to decide if they wanted to do the picture. And that's all they got. So we, in essence, won because they that Tom got the rights back. 
Tom Laughlin passed away on December 12, 2013 from complications of pneumonia at the age of 82. He had made movies his own way, written books about subjects varying from screenwriting to cancer, taught psychology, and he even ran for president as a protest candidate three separate times. He had a mind that was uh, for the ages. Uh, he had the world view. And he could see things and see into things unlike anybody I had ever seen. So, you know, he changed the film distribution business um, just because he wanted to have a little bit more control over his movie and found a better way to do it. And they're still doing it today with the mega multiple release pattern. And from all reports throughout the industry, he was a guy with a reputation for being tough, being difficult at times, and definitely being litigious. Well, Tom, you either loved Tom or you hated him. And he loved him because he would fight to the death for you. But if you crossed him, you hated him because he would fight to the death against you. As of 2019, there are no Billy Jack remakes in the works. And as for where the footage of the return to Billy Jack is, Robin didn't seem to know. I don't know. Whatever happened to the film, I know that it, uh, I don't know if the kids have access to it or, but it was like half shot and stuff. And then, you know, Tom always wanted to have another, you know, film made. And uh, uh, he had talked over the years, you know, Mark Wahlberg was up for a uh, possibility of being Billy Jack. And I still think he would make a great Billy Jack. He just has the essence, I think, of Tom. I look at him and I see Tom in him, you know. It's really interesting. Mark Wahlberg as Billy Jack? Yeah, why not? And while we don't know just how far along he got in making it, I do hope that one day we'll get to see it. Thank you for listening to The Industry. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to my very special guest, Robin Hutton, who was very gracious in my conversation with her. Robin is currently an author and has a book out right now about Sergeant Reckless. It's the true story of a World War II hero who just happened to be a horse. Check it out at SergeantReckless.com. That's Sergeant as in S-G-T-Reckless.com. Music in this episode is by Silent Partner, Wayne Jones, Endless Love, and The Whole Other. If you want to get in touch, you certainly can. We have a new email address, dan at theindustrypodcast.com. I tried to make it as long as possible. I think I did a pretty good job. There is also a Facebook page now, which would be facebook.com slash theindustrypod. So go on over there and get in touch, leave a comment, complaint, whatever you got. And of course, there is Twitter, which is at theindustry13. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving a review for the industry on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't enjoy it, well, then, then don't leave a review. You can subscribe for free there as well, also on Stitcher and basically everywhere people get podcasts. Link to everything pertaining to this episode, including every article used to research it, is available at our homepage at theindustrypodcast.com. And we'll be back again soon with another episode detailing some of the lesser-known things that went on in the industry. Good night.